This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, we'll be continuing my interview with dramatist Brian Sibley. As you may recall from the previous episode, Brian knew Ray Bradbury personally and adapted many of Ray's stories for BBC Radio. Well, in today's interview, Brian will talk about many of the techniques for turning prose into drama. Now, my own view is that the longevity of Ray Bradbury's stories comes in part from how, for want of a better term, media-friendly his stories are. This is sometimes because his stories are high concept, like travelling through time to hunt dinosaurs, or a newborn baby killing its parents. Sometimes it's because his stories have striking imagery, like a man who is tattooed from head to toe and whose tattoos come to life. And sometimes it's because they have a really striking twist, like a man who has been observing the crowd that gathers around car crashes and who is then himself a victim of a car crash. Sometimes, too, what's media-friendly are those bite-sized stories that Ray was so good at writing. Part of the reason his stories turn up so often on anthology shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents or The Twilight Zone is that his stories are just right for the half-hour or shorter format. But it does go deeper than that. Ray often referred to himself as a hybrid writer. And what he meant by that was that he wasn't an author tied to a single medium, but wrote in a way which could easily slip and slide between media. And he certainly demonstrated this time and time again when he would take one of his short stories and adapt it for TV. And this is what we usually think of, starting with a short story and then turning it into something else. But did you know that he would also start in another medium and then end up with prose? Do you know Icing the Body Electric, his short story about a robotic grandmother? It was first published in 1969 in a book called Icing the Body Electric. Well, actually, no, it wasn't. It was first published on May the 18th, 1962, seven years earlier. It was first published on CBS television because I Sing the Body Electric was a TV script long before it was a published short story. Ray wrote the script for the original Twilight Zone TV series. It was one of several scripts he wrote for the show, but it was the only one filmed. Um, Let's give another example. What about The Whole Town Sleeping? That's a chapter from Dandelion Wine. It's the one where Lavinia Nebs takes a shortcut across town through the ravine and ends up being pursued by the murderous figure known as The Lonely One. Dandelion Wine, 1957. But the chapter was originally a short story published in McCall's magazine in 1950. Well, no, it wasn't. It was first published in 1948, 
July 15th on CBS Radio. It was an episode of Suspense called Summer Night and it starred Ida Lupino. What happened here was that Ray submitted the story to the radio network first and only later had it published as a short story. So what we see here is that from those early decades of his career, Ray was not only creating ideas that could be well expressed in performative media, he was genuinely slipping between media. By the mid-1950s, he was really well established on radio. For the most part, his stories were actually turned into scripts by other writers, but the fact that his stories lent themselves to being dramatised speaks to the inherently dramatic nature of the stories. And of course, many of these old-time radio recordings still survive today. They were kept alive by endless reruns over the years, plus keen tape-swapping by fans in the 1970s and the 80s. That's how I first got interested in Bradbury's media work. And of course, they continue to be sold and exchanged as MP3 files today, all over the internet. We're very lucky, I think, to have access to all of Ray's stories as dramatised on shows like Suspense, Radio City Playhouse, Dimension X, Escape, X-1, CBS Radio Workshop. Now, radio drama went into a decline in the US from the 1950s onwards, although there have been periodic revivals, of course. Ray himself had an anthology series, Bradbury 13, on public radio in the 1980s, and his stories popped up from time to time in one-off productions and episodes of general anthology series. But here in the UK, radio drama has continued to be produced. BBC Radio still produces some radio drama every week, although nowhere near the amount that it used to. And as you'll hear in this week's interview, Getting radio drama commissioned by the BBC today is extremely challenging because there are relatively few opportunities available. But Ray Bradbury was adapted for BBC Radio all through the decades from the 1950s onwards. He even wrote a radio play for the BBC, Leviathan 99, which was first broadcast in 1968. Oh, and there's another instance of Bradbury debuting a story in media before adapting the idea for print. After the radio production of Leviathan 99, Ray turned it into a stage play, and then later into a novella. And in the 1990s, Ray had his own weekly drama series on BBC Radio, Ray Bradbury's Tales of the Bizarre, which continues to be rerun on the BBC's archive channel to this day. The series was actually the work of two British dramatists, Brian Sibley and Catherine Tchaikowska, who dramatised about six stories each, with Ray introducing each episode with a little bit of background information on the origin of each story. If you visit my website, you'll find extensive listings of Bradbury's work on radio. And I've also written a number of articles about Bradbury and radio, so I'll post some links to those on the website. Head for bradburymedia.co.uk Well, 
Well, now let's get to the second part of my interview with Brian Sibley, where we go in-depth into dramatising Ray Bradbury. Now, as as a writer yourself, you've spent a lot of time kind of channelling other authors when you've done your dramatisations. So, for instance, you did Lord of the Rings for BBC Radio, which was quite a long series. Obviously, it's a mammoth book, and it's, what, a ten-part series, I think? How, how do no, you... no, it was originally 26 half hours. 26, um, wow. And, and then was rebroadcast as uh, 13 one-hours, but yes, right. uh, yeah. really 13 hours of, of radio. And similarly, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, all seven books, each of them about four to six episodes each. The History of Titus Grome, Mervyn Peake's Gothic masterpiece, which again was done in six hours, or The Once and Future King, T.H. White's Arthurian Romance, which again I dramatised in six one-hour episodes. So yes, you're quite right, the long form, and trying to make that long form uh, both work in, in an episodic presentation, but also to capture books which are often far bigger and vaster in their content and their and their importance than you can actually quite convey and particularly with all the restraints of radio which are quite different to putting something on film so how just from a mechanical point of view how do you go about that i mean you've got a book that is of certain size and you've got a certain number of hours to fill how on earth do you plot it all out well it's partly mathematical (laughs) Um, but i for me as a kid, when I always wanted to be a performer rather than a writer. or I wanted to be two things, a cartoonist or a, an actor-performer. And from a kid onwards, I was able to do... I had a knack for doing impersonations. And I don't know where impersonation, the skill of impersonating, comes from, but I think it comes from some sense of being able to not just mimic, but to immerse yourself in whatever that character is in a sense where you you capture the essence of the person and therefore you can replicate it. And so I've been very fortunate in most of these books that we've been talking about, that I've been talking and mentioning, you've been talking about, most of those are books that I've read and had a hugely powerful impact on me when I was young. You know, so The Once and Future King by T.H. White, I read under the bedclothes with a torch, you know, after lights out. <laughs> um, having seen Disney's film, The Sword in the Stone, uh, and rushed to the shop to find a copy, which was a movie tie-in, but which wasn't retelling. It was the original T.H. White book. And just fell in love with it and read it sort of way into the night. And, and it's a big book, but finished it within, you know, two days or whatever. So that immersing in, in those books, and they're being part of my psyche, really, since I was a kid, is is part of it that all of the books that we've talked about are things that i read when i was very young or quite young in my youth and therefore are somehow embedded in me so i have a knack i think of being able to capture an author's tone and then write that as dialogue the big challenge with ray's work well two one is my slavish admiration of him which makes it extremely difficult to take a slightly removed view of the writer because you're you're confronted with doing exactly the same task, but you're bound up with thoughts about, I need to make this as faithful as I possibly can. But I think I was lucky when I came to do some of Ray's short stories and later The Illustrated Man, in that I was in a position of, A, knowing the books as well as I did, and knowing Ray's intent and being able to not really think like Ray, but have enough of that feeling about me that I was confident of that, and at the same time had 
grown to have an understanding of radio to know how I could do things not necessarily with lines that an actor spoke, but with the ambience, the sound effects, the whole feeling of what people would be hearing. And of course, I knew because of Ray's involvement with radio from the earliest years. And, you know, I've, as soon as I, it was available, I got hold of his collection of the stories that he introduced from Dimension X, and this big sort of audio cassette. Uh, and, and I knew his love of radio and his passion for it. So it seemed to me, I thought I knew how I could make Ray's words work on radio. Somebody, I can't remember for the moment who it is, but somebody has commented that the problem with Ray's writing, in fact, I think it may have, may have, been, may have been Francois Truffaut. I'm trying to think who it was, and maybe I'm mis misaccrediting it. But somebody commented that the difficulty about Ray's prose is that when you read it on the page, you believe it. When you hear people speaking it, it seems unreal. It seems artifice. It seems just to be, you know, an illusion. Do you yeah. remember who, who said was, something like that? I think that was Rod Serling, Twilight Zone. You're absolutely right. It was Rod Serling uh, for the reason that he turned down, I think, uh, the first of or a couple of the early stories that Ray submitted to the Twilight Zone. You're absolutely correct. It was Rod Serling. And he's correct in that. If you read the dialogue out loud in a Bradbury story, it can sound not only just, not just contrived, but it can sound totally artificial. But if you can find a way of conveying the dialogue alongside the use of sound effects and music and atmosphere, and if you've got actors who are particularly gifted, I think you can do it. I mean, the first of his stories, which I ever dramatized, uh, was the next in line, which is a story which made a phenomenal impact on me. I mean, you, you've written about the, the story and the, and the production, so you know what I'm about to say. But the point about that story was it seemed to me that there's this neurotic woman who is saddled with a husband who is clearly deeply insensitive and very probably rather tired of his intense and nervous wife of subjecting her to, in a, having been stranded in this small Mexican village of visiting the local mummy cemetery where these mummies that have been disinterred are just standing there in columns alongside the walls of this catacomb a real place where ray had visited and been enormously affected by so one of the the things that i wanted to convey in that story was the what was the internal structure of the two people but primarily the wife what her internal dialogue was living out, how she, in her mind, was playing out her fears and anxieties, the things that, that play out in all our minds during conversations, but which she never actually articulate. I had a great actress and a lady called Carol Boyd who absolutely caught and evoked that, and, and I was much influenced by Agnes Moorhead's performance in Sorry, Wrong Number, which, of course, began as a radio play about, again, another neurotic woman. But we added into that you know, the sounds of the mummy's voices, which Ray doesn't specify in the book, but which um, we gave voice to, so that there was this, the catacomb wasn't just an echoey place, it was a place which echoed with voices and sounds and whispers. And the use of those kind of devices, I think, enabled me to capture something of the essence of Ray's work. And the fact that he liked it was an added blessing, actually even though I changed the end, as you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just throw this in as an aside. I, I know from conversations with Ray and from what I've read that he generally, if he trusted someone to do an adaptation, he would let them do what they wanted with it. 
But yeah. if he had written the script himself and somebody else came along and tampered with that, he was not happy. <laughs> yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and uh, I certainly w- was happy to have, very happy to have that endorsement. And uh, I was very nervous about going back to him. The, I should explain for people who don't know the story that the end of Next in Line, the wife becomes so neurotic that, in fact, she dies. And having died, he then commits her <laughs> burial to the catacombs which she has visited with him and which he found so terrifying and you don't know quite what happens in the story quite because at one point she's clearly her health is getting worse and she's becoming more and more stressed and neurotic and then it cuts to a scene of the husband driving away from the city the car which broke down is now repaired and he's talking to his wife and then he reaches out an arm and pats the empty seat next to him and on his arm Bradbury tells us there's a black band so he's talking to a wife that he has got rid of intentionally or accidentally and that obviously was is a visual although it's written down it's a very visual image because you are listening to a conversation and then you realize that it's a one-sided conversation and then you realize that the car passenger seat is empty and then you immediately understand what's happened and that wasn't going to be very easy to convey on radio and so I came up with a completely different ending which was that you're back in the catacombs and you hear the same husband but with a rather ditzy a blonde well you don't know she's blonde on radio but you might <laughs> suppose that she was a kind of archetypal ditzy blonde uh, who's saying oh these are really creepy and so on and he's now taking her to visit the catacombs And amongst the voices of the mummies, which we've already established and heard, there's now the voice of his wife, Marie, actually amongst the voices of the mummies. She is calling out as well to him. And it's got a very chilling end to it. And he just kind of ends by saying to the girl, well, you know, you want to behave, lovey, because you don't want to be the next in line. (laughs) And I was very anxious about how Ray would interpret that, because everything up to that point had totally followed Ray's story. And I just put into dialogue the feelings and emotions that were going through the wife's head. But he kind of accepted it. And I think you're, well, he didn't kind of accept it. He did accept it. And I think you're right that he felt absolutely obsessive and and rightly so about his text i mean we know how many times people may not be aware of it but the number of times he went over stories and over stories rewriting and changing the number of collections of his stories where a story is taken out because he changes his view about it and another one is added he was constantly revising and reviewing everything that he did but i think he did feel that when you have to let go of something as he did you know repeatedly with films and stories on television and latterly in the cinema, you have to let go of it and let the director, the people with talent, just do what they think they can do and hope that it works out well. Sometimes it does. You've talked about long-form adaptation and short stories there. When it comes to something like The Illustrated Man, you've got something that's a bit of both because it's it's a book-length work, but it's made up of totally separate stories. How, how did you approach adapting that? That was quite difficult because at the same time as I was dramatising The Illustrated Man, somebody else was dramatising The Martian Chronicles. I would dearly like to have done both. That wasn't an option available. So I decided I'd accept the, the job that was on offer rather than just turn that down. But that actually played into what I could use from The Illustrated Man and there couldn't be any stories that were in any sense an overlap with what was going on in The Martian Chronicles. 
both of them were reduced to an hour, which was itself an impossible, almost impossible challenge. To my mind, I would have liked to have had had it and been able to play it across a number of episodes. That again wasn't an option. So it was very difficult trying to decide what I could use, knowing the things that I wasn't going to be allowed to use. I wanted to make the framing device, and of course I've I've read that Ray was ruthless in the way he cut back on that linking story of the illustrated man whose body, as it were, tells the stories to the young man he meets uh, through the tattoos that uh, that are painted onto him, or engraved onto him, I should say, really. And he cut that back and back and back. And I wanted it to be something that was real, so that there was a sense that this character that lives between the stories, he's not just the means of carrying the stories around, which works perfectly well in the book, but actually had some kind of, it had some significance to the relationship with the young man. Again, I changed the ending quite dramatically there because at the end of the book, when the young man realises that there is a drama playing out uh, on one of these living tattoos on the illustrated man's back, that that drama is his own potential death. And he just runs away, runs towards the nearest town to escape. And I wanted something more powerful than that because I didn't think it would work in sound. And so I have him where the story ends and you don't know quite what's happening. He's aware of this tattoo growing on the man's shoulder blade. And then it cuts to a road, a car stopping, a voice you've not heard who's the driver who picks up somebody, it's pouring with rain, picks up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker gets in the car and he immediately sees that the hand on the hand, as the boy has seen previously, is this tattoo of a rose in the palm of the hand of the man. And you immediately assume this is the illustrated man now meeting another person. Or or is it because he only speaks initially in a voice which could be either the man or the boy? And you're left thinking, is this the illustrated man or is this the boy that he has somehow, if you like, infected mm, with mm. the burden of his storytelling? And it was a completely, obviously a complete departure, really, from the way Ray ended the story. That was a challenge, but I wanted to keep that framework strong because we hung three stories on it and that was all we could accommodate. I'd love to have been more because there's so many stories in that, in that book that I, I relish. But I also wanted to keep something of the original story, The Illustrated Man, which, again, is is different, but which has an intensity of its own, which I think people are sometimes confused when they come across the story, The Illustrated Man, when it turns up in, in one of the anthologies, to find that it's similar but not the same mm. as The Illustrated Man, yeah. that's framing device of the book of that name. But yes, it was a challenge, but I was reasonably happy with it, or, other than wishing it could have been three or four times longer. <laughs> Were you tempted to sort of follow that up at any point by proposing a complete series based on the book? Well, the BBC has changed quite dramatically from even from when we did uh, The Illustrated Man. It's almost impossible now to sell a series of any length to them. And uh, I don't really have the appetite now for... The last job that I did was condensing... Richard Adams washed it down into two one hours and I really felt that it deserved longer. It's a fact that the BBC would not be doing any of those long form dramas now. 
uh, the, the, you know that time has gone if you can't accommodate it in one one hour episode or you know as they did with something wicked 45 minutes which was in my mind shameful um but the odd thing is that there's a, a public appetite for it but the bbc just doesn't acknowledge it i'm being very you know outspoken in saying this but i believe it's the truth the stories which um Catherine Joukowska and I dramatised for Ray Bradbury's Tales of the Bizarre, which was two two six-part series um, on Radio 4, and now endlessly being rebroadcast on what's called Radio 4 Extra, which is kind of the BBC's archive channel. And yet, after we'd done the first two, Catherine and I and our two producers went back to the BBC and said, can we do a third series? And Ray was certainly up for it. And Ray introduced each of the episodes, as you know. So, you know, he had a real involvement in the making of those plays. And the BBC said, no, there's no public appetite for it. Well, there either is or they're just filling time now by repeating them endlessly <laughs> on Radio 4 Extra. But uh, I listen to them. I still re-listen to them every time they pop up. Not just my own, but, but Catherine's too. And I really think, you know, we captured something of, of Ray's work. And having as indeed some other radio versions in the States were able to have, having Ray introducing the story, telling you the story and explaining why he wrote it. I think it's a real, you know, a real bonus. But there's loads of stories that I wish I could have done. You know, the small assassin, for example, the sound of thunder, the pedestrian, and they just go on and on. But there's many stories that I wish I could have tackled which I don't think will ever happen now. But there's there's a wealth of material there, as you say, and it it is great that they are being repeated, even if it doesn't seem that the BBC appreciate it. It's great that people have access to all of those. I think that's fantastic. I think all the ones that we tried to do were all ones which got to the internalising of characters, which I'm pleased about. I think The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl, for example, where you have a single actor having to... Uh, <laughs> speak aloud really you know and that is something that would be very difficult to do on film because if you if you did the fruit at the bottom of the bowl where this man having committed a murder thinks he's left his fingerprints and he becomes more and more obsessed so he has to wipe down every single thing in the house including every kind of droplet from the chandelier and every book and in the bookcase and every piece of china and you know it becomes obsessive down to the fact that he's polishing the fruit literally at the bottom of the fruit bowl so as to make sure he leaves no finger marks behind. That story would work, and I'm sure, I don't know whether it's been done on, on film, it probably has, but the, the problem with it as a story is that you would have to have a character either with a, a voiceover giving the thoughts or speaking aloud, which is always a difficult thing. On radio, an internal voice is an internal voice because you as the listener are hearing what's going on in the head of the person. And so in, in that play, I was able to have the character expressing his anxiety, suddenly realizing there was something that he might have touched and something, a plate or a cup or whatever it was, uh, some item of china had got broken. And it must mean that every shard of that has then got to be cleaned because he, his fingerprint could be on a single bit of that. And so that obsessiveness and the, and the act of it was, was a fantastic performance. They just built and built and built. I think worked on radio in a way that it would not have worked anywhere near as effectively visually. And that's where radio, I really believe, and you know, Ray's stuff has appeared endlessly on radio, both sides of the Atlantic. I think that's what played to its strength in radio terms. Um, you've written about this, and, and I know you've mentioned um, both the, the Velt and uh, There Shall Come Soft Rains. I remember as a young man, I think possibly even before I'd read Bradbury, I'm not entirely sure of the 
of the chronology, but I heard there will come soft rains on radio and was blown, literally blown away by it. I thought it was so extraordinary. And now today I'm sure that the electronic music track, effects track, probably sounds a bit kind of, <laughs> a bit of its time and a bit unrealistic in the world we now live in with super duper effects. But for me, it was just so striking and extraordinary. So radio, I think, is a medium where Ray really does shine. I really do. I mean, I, I could do the foghorn on radio and make it work. I wrote a screenplay for an animated version of Moby Dick, half-hour animated film. Um, it was a, a company that produced great classics in 30-minute animation. And that was an ordeal. You know, Ray had problems getting Moby Dick down to um, to the length of the film. I certainly had problems getting it down to a half-hour film. And we talked about it on a couple of occasions when I visited him at his home, both of us having struggled with the same uh, Leviathan, as it were. If I was to do Moby Dick, which I've offered twice to do on radio and again been rejected, I would give the sea and the inhabitants of the sea, I won't say fish because we now know which Melville didn't, that a whale is not a fish, but the creatures that live in the sea, I would give them voices of some kind, just as when I did the wind, I gave the wind a voice. The sea would would have a presence in my Moby Dick, but trying to get somebody to believe in that is proving difficult. But I do think that there are things about elements of stories and Melville writes in the same kind of architectural style that Ray writes in, that does make it quite difficult to just accept when it comes off the page, read, you know, aloud, cold. Although if you can read it, as many good readers have done, with of course all Ray's description, then of course it works as magically the same. But isolate the dialogue and it's really difficult. You know, as another project I might do one day. Perhaps I could do Ray Bradbury meets uh, Moby Dick. I don't know. <laughs> he did. He did dress up as Ahab once for a photo shoot. Did you ever see that? <laughs> he did. It's an amazing picture. Absolutely. Uh, and he looks. He looks a hell of a lot better than Gregory Peck. I thought. I thought he done it rather well actually. Because um, although I admire Peck as a as an actor, and the film is, I think, much better than it's often described. You know, Peck is somehow too too gentle, too benign to play Ahab. And I think Ray could have actually summoned up, you know, the ferocity in Ahab and the and the, the the bulk and the magnificence of him. Of course, Orson Welles should really have played Ahab. But uh, yes, I thought he, he he made a good made a good um, a good ringer for Ahab in that picture. <laughs> now moving from um Great white whales to desert islands. If I'm if, I, if I'm going to maroon you on a desert island and allow you to have only one piece of Bradbury with you, what are you going to take? Well, it would have to be something wicked, I guess, just because the story means so much to me. I love the relationship between Will and Jim, the two boys. I love their opposite characteristics, you know, one born minute to midnight one born a minute after the blonde the dark haired that idea of opposites and the attraction that they have for one another and the dichotomy that they embody uh, that we all have within us because we all have our will halloway and our jim nightshade inside us and i just love that contrast i love all those ancillary characters i love the lightning rod salesman 
uh, interestingly, we talked about automata earlier and Disney autom automations and uh, audio animatronics. And of course, the actor who played the lightning rod salesman in the film of Something Wicked This Way Comes was Royal Dano, who had been the voice and was the voice of all the iterations of Abraham Lincoln in the Disney audio animatronics. So a nice kind of synchronicity there. But uh, I love those cases. I love, obviously love the other two opposing characters. You know, Will's father, this depressed failure or man who feels he's a failure of a father, who's the local librarian, a pedestrian life, a man who lives in books, but is not a man of action of any kind. And Mr. Dark, you know, this extraordinary, malevolent, threatening character who is, but at the same time as being all both of those things, is also immensely appealing because I think that Ray understood the appeal of the dark side of things, the dark in emotions, the dark in our innermost fears and anxieties and, and needs. They're not just something which is repellent. They can be equally attractive. And the conflict, I mean, the most powerful scene in the book for me and in the film, because the film is flawed in many ways, but the scene between the confrontation between the father and Mr. Dark in the library, where the librarian has got the books to lean on, the, you know, all of the, everything he's ever read and loved and, and has passion for is at his back. All those writers, you know, are on the shelves around him, protecting him, defending him. But there's Mr. Dark bursting into this library, ripping the pages from the books, you know, throwing them here and there and everywhere, just destroying everything that has made this man that he's facing and yet the gentle determined courage of that father to bring about as he does at the end of the story a conclusion uh, everything about the story from the whistle of the train roaring into the into the sleepy little town dark at night the two boys aware of this sound of this mournful moaning of the whistle of the train as it approaches the carnival which suddenly appears out of nowhere as it were appears on the surface to be innocent and pretty and attractive, but underneath has these dark, strange things happening under the canvas of the flaps of the tent. Uh, all of that is just so intense and fantastic. The language is just magical beyond belief. I once de defended it on a programme on the BBC where there was people were asked to choose a book and you each chose a book and then you had to defend your choice against the other person and I was hard put to defend it against my colleague who'd chosen their book and also the presenter but to me I'm unrepentant it's a book I can read and reread and I wish I'd had the opportunity to bring it to life in a different medium but in a way that doesn't matter because it means it's still unsullied it's still my book the book that changed the way I thought about all kinds of things but also evoked in me this love of just love of language which Bradbury just revels in you know absolutely what I would take and I would just hope I guess that all those other stories that I treasure including the golden apples of the sun because it was the book that started it are enough embedded in my memory that I could summon those and evoke them you know and for myself sitting there on the beach when I wasn't worrying about how I was going to be rescued um, retell the stories to myself in, in some way, you know, not just the ones I've dramatised, but all those others that I never got around to dramatising. The first time we met was in a, a publisher's office in London. We'd been corresponding for some years before we actually met. 
I interviewed him. It was a professional interview, although we'd been exchanging letters for some time. And I took with me, can't remember what the book was at the time. It might have been, could it have been Graveyard for Lunatics? I don't think so. But anyway, whatever it was. But I also took with me my copy of The Halloween Tree, which I haven't mentioned, but which is another book which I adore and which I would again love to bring to radio, but I think would be discounted now because radio doesn't really concern itself with broadcasting for young people. It doesn't see itself as having a, a part of its output which it wants to make available to young listeners. And it would be perfect for that. And it would be a perfect Halloween program for me. Anyway, I took it with him and he, he inscribed it and says, we meet at last. <laughs> and it's a scrawly handwriting. I mean, it's nothing. When I look at all the signed copies of stuff I have of Ray, I, I often think, oh, God, Ray, I wish you'd written a bit neater than the way you did. But it doesn't matter because he signed it and he signed it in a particular place. So I remember those incidents, particularly through the books that I have. And I have got a copy of something, Wicked This Way Comes, a very early copy of my own, which I latterly took with me to meet him and he signed it so I would take that specific copy but I think of the other times that um, he took me once for lunch to a restaurant on Rodeo Drive when I was in America doing some work on something or other Disney related I think when I arrived at the restaurant he was already sitting there because he'd ridden there on his bike so he was in his usual white t-shirt and or, or short sleeve shirt and shorts incongruously wearing a Moby Dick tie as well, one of a tie with whales on it anyway. And my napkin was folded on my plate. And when I opened the napkin, inside was a new edition of the Halloween tree, which in which he'd drawn, as he did for many people, his, his own Halloween tree in gold pen and then little orange stickers to represent the, the pumpkins on which he drew little golden faces. So I think of all those kind of occasions, going to his house, once and uh, him giving me a copy of Headlong Hall or a book about Headlong Hall that he had written a small book, limited kind of edition of something. So I think of all of those kind of encounters or sitting with him and Maggie, his wife, in what became the room which they lived in when he was beginning to become less and less well. And it was shortly before Halloween and he was planning that he was going to go out on the porch, which was adjacent to where he was now sort of living really um, and sit there so the kids could come and get their sweets on trick-or-treat night on Halloween and I remember him sending me he said go into the next room take the picture off the wall and it was a picture well it wasn't a picture it was a, paper, a newspaper strip of a Buck Rogers comic strip it wasn't the original art or anything like that it was just cut out of the comic so it was yellowing paper but it was in a picture frame he said, bring that, bring that picture into it. So I brought it in and he said, this, this is what started my passion with outer space, with the space travel, with all of that sci-fi thing. And when I first met him, it was in his old office when he was in, in downtown LA. Anybody who's ever seen the Ray Bradbury theater on the American television series, that was no set, that was his real office. And uh, going up and then walking into this room where there was just everywhere there was just stuff you commented to me before we began this conversation about the amount of stuff in my room in which i'm speaking to you well it was nothing like the stuff in ray's room on the desk in front of him was the nautilus the one of the actual models that disney had used in making Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea uh, over there there was uh, 
you know, stuffed Mickey Mouse and there's something else and there was art from Fantasia and there were books and comics and toys, toys galore. I just suddenly felt this is what what your room ought to be like. Uh, and I regretted the fact, and I told you about it a couple of times, that my mother had made me chuck out in adolescence all my old comics and things, all my Mickey Mouse weeklies. I threw them all away because my mother said, you're too old for these, you don't need these now. And, and I now reclaim stuff. I find something on eBay and I think, oh my God, I had that as a kid. I want to own it again. And I guess that's what I feel most about Ray. I hadn't thought I was going to say this, but it's, it's there now in my head, is that he understood where we all as individuals come from, what we were, and, and being able to lock into that, which he was completely able to do. I mean, I don't know whether I believe his story. He told me several times about remembering his circumcision and being a few days old and so on. I've no idea whether that is just uh, something that he imposed on himself as a, as a story, you know, and, and, and came to believe it, but he clearly did believe it. But he did understand youth and memory and the importance of all those things that make up what we are and that's why dandelion wine which we haven't mentioned but which would be another book if i was allowed to take three books it would be dandelion wine as well because dandelion wine is a complete evocation of a childhood a childhood that i never experienced and many many people haven't experienced maybe a childhood that never quite existed but which exists absolutely when ray puts it on the page, the evocation of the seasons, the evocation of the boy, the boy who buys these cream light super trainers that will run him through the world and into tomorrow. This is the passion that he had for everything. His life was just full of passion. I saw one of his last lectures that he gave when I was in LA and it was just fantastic to see him firing on all cylinders, you know, even in a wheelchair, even really in his seriously in decline. But he was full of all that vigor that he had had as a kid, or if he hadn't had as a kid, that he was still dreaming that he'd had as a kid. And I think it's that that being in touch with all that raw emotion of both childhood and the as you get older the deeper anxieties and fears that we all experience and making them vivid and live for people so that people can sometimes associate with them as you do in dandelion wine and sometimes as in something wicked this way come you are pleased because you've exorcised something from yourself by reading ray's description of it so those are those are some of the things i'd be chewing over sitting on the sand doodling some way of trying to find a means of making a boat to escape, which I would not be able to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's magnificent. Brian, we're running out of time now, um, but if listeners would like to find out more about your work, where can they go? Well, all the, all the Ray Bradbury stories, the BBC haven't wised up to this yet. If they hear this, they probably will. <laughs> but all the Ray Bradbury stories that I've dramatised uh, can all be found on my SoundCloud account, which you can search for to be SoundCloud, you'll find it. And all the stories that I dramatise for Ray Bradbury's Tales of the Bizarre and Next in Line are on there. And also an interview documentary I made with Ray, a uh, radio documentary, that, the one where I said we had to close the shades to keep out the sound of the crowds 
screaming in Disneyland. So they're all on there, or you can visit my website at just www.briansibley.com. Thank you for having this, giving me this opportunity, Phil, because we've talked on numerous occasions and corresponded over the years, and I know how passionate you are about Ray and actually how accomplished you are about uh, writing about Ray and opening up his work to serious students because to me that's been the one sadness if I had a sadness about Ray's work is that it's still seen as a kind of marginal by many many people as being a marginal literary creation when I I think it's so much more major than some people let's say uh, maybe think but I'm happy to know that there are passionate people out there who feel the same as you do and I do. So I'm happy about that. Ray once said to me, uh, talking about what's immortality, and he said to me, well, you know, I've got children, and if they have children, they'll have children. That's where immortality, my immortality will lie. And maybe they'll go into outer space, and then they'll have true immortality. That was his standard answer. But he also said to me on, on that occasion, or another one, I always wanted to fill the, the gaps on the bookshelf in the library, as it were. But now I would be happy if just one story is remembered or even just part of one story or a quotation from it, or if it only appeared in the footnote to somebody's article about literature, that would be a kind of immortality. And what can an ordinary person, a one person in the world expect of immortality well that should be good enough if if something survived and you know I, another story i would love to have dramatized the smile which i i think is one of the most evocative stories that that ray wrote you know with this this little boy who sees this annual destruction of great works of art in the culture in which he lives and manages to capture just a scrap of one of these paintings when it's ripped to pieces and when he examines it by the moonlight in his home and opens his hand, what he sees in his hand is a smile. He doesn't need to announce that we're talking about the Gioconda, we're talking about Mona Lisa, that he doesn't need to tell us that because we all instantly know. And that idea of the, what Bradbury was advocating is the preservation of the dreams and the fears and the loves and the terrors we all of us need to keep contact with if we're to remain people who have any value to this creation in which we live. Brian, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. I've enjoyed it enormously. My thanks once again to Brian Sibley for joining me today. I'll put links to Brian's website on my site, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. And if you have any comments on the podcast, please post them on my website or on the Bradbury 100 Facebook page. And please join me next week. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app 
You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Thank you.